scripture that we're launching from is Psalm 143. I'm going to read verses 1 through 6. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my pleas for mercy. In your faithfulness, answer me in your righteousness. Enter not into judgment with your servant, for no one living is righteous before you. For the enemy has pursued my soul. He has crushed my life to the ground. He has made me sit in darkness like the long dead. Therefore, my spirit faints within me. My heart within me is appalled. I remember the days of old. I meditate on what you have done. I ponder the works of your hands. I stretch out to you. My, I stretch out my hands to you. My soul thirsts for you like a parched land. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This psalm is called a Psalm of David. And so it's a psalm that is at least attributed to David, if not David wrote. And in it, he is pushed to the brink. The enemy is pursuing him. He feels crushed. His spirit is fainting. Can we all identify with that? Ever had your spirit faint within you? Like you just, you're so tired. You're wore thin. And where does he go to get strength? David says, I remember the past. I remember the days of old. I meditate on what you did for me. I know my past. I know where I came from. He goes to find strength, pondering the work of God's hands in the past. In other words, you took care of me then. You're going to take care of me now. There is great strength in the past. There is great strength in history. There is a saying that those who don't know their history are doomed to repeat it. Have you heard that? Right? Like if you don't know your history, you're going to make the same mistakes as the people that went on before you or the same mistakes you already made. But there, there's another mistake we can make when we forget the past. Sometimes, yeah, we're doomed to make the same mistakes. Sometimes in the past, they also got it really right. And if we, if we miss the past, we forget our past, we forget our heritage, then we actually can't remember what they did well and repeat it, right? You, you can be doomed to face, to, to repeat the past, or you could be doomed to never repeat past. Have you ever looked at your family history, where your family comes from? A couple of my family members have done the whole DNA test, and, and, and uh, it's surprising. A lot of times when people do those DNA tests, you'll find you have some DNA that you did not know you had, some heritage that you didn't know was a part of who you were. And there's strength in bringing that heritage back. And so what I want to do this summer is I want to bring some of our Presbyterian heritage back. Because as Presbyterians, and this may not be true of you, some of you weren't Presbyterian most of your life, but you are here and you are now. Okay, Presbyterian heritage has really sort of two sets of roots. One we know a lot about. It's the Reformation. A guy named Martin Luther, it's a guy named John Calvin. Okay, It's the Enlightenment. It's very logical, very ahead. But also being Scotch-Irish, we have a base that is what we would call Celtic. Celtic. Scotch-Irish means we're also Celtic. Now, some of you may have heard the word Celtic, although you may have said it like the basketball team and said the Boston Celtics. Okay, but it's a hard K, Celtic. Okay, and you may have some kind of understanding that it's Scotch or Irish, but a lot of us 
don't understand our Celtic heritage as Presbyterians. And uh, what I have found is, as I've started to explore this, is it's, it's really fascinating, and I think it's really helpful. And I think it's really to the detriment of the church that we have forgotten this because Celtic Christianity got a lot of things right. So uh, this summer we're going to do Celtic a lot of stuff. Okay, It's kind of a summer of Celtic. And uh, even our liturgy is going to come out of Celtic uh, liturgy and prayers. So if you notice, our, our liturgy may have felt a little different because it's, it's Celtic. Okay, so today I want to just introduce you to this word Celtic and what does it mean and who were these Celtic people? Well, actually, historians disagree quite a bit on what it means to be Celtic. Okay, the, the, the idea, we, we tend to associate with Scotland and Ireland and Wales and that area, but actually Celts were people all across Europe. If you have a handout, there's a, there's a, uh, there's a page with several maps on it, and you can see just how prevalent Celtics, uh, the Celts were. Uh, Celts were generally people that shared some language and some culture with one another. They spoke some kind of Celtic type of language and had some Celtic culture. The reason it's hard to exactly pinpoint is because they were incredibly tribal. Okay? They had their own tribe. So it wasn't like, like this big empire. It wasn't like the Roman Empire where everybody was forced to be Roman and speak the same language. There were all these little tribes. But the little tribes would take each other over. They might marry from another tribe. And so there was this shared sort of language and shared culture between all these people. And it was really all across Europe. I mean, you, uh, there's, there's proof of Celtic people down in Spain, all the way over to what's now Russia, and of course, up into the British Isles. I mean, all over the place, starting about 1000 BC, we can track back people across Europe that were Celtic. The Romans called these people the Gauls. Sometimes they're called the Gaels, which is where the language of Gaelic comes from. They're called the British, the Irish. Sometimes they're called the Galatians. If you heard the word Druid, Druid were the religious leaders of the Celts at various times. Again, today in Scotland, Ireland, Wales, but at one point all across Europe. Now, as you can imagine, if they're very tribal, uh, they, they, there were a lot of differences. And you can imagine being in Europe in like 500 BC, it's not easy to eke a living out, right? I mean, that's rough terrain, that's cold weather, wild animals tribal warfare, Romans pushing at you from one side, uh, um, uh, Germanic peoples and Vikings to your north and to your northeast. Okay, these people had a very rough time of it. They were very tough. And it was tribal, but we can say some things that they definitely had in common. Number one was that they were so tribal. And by tribal, I mean they were like tight groups. Okay, they were family groups. They had deep community. They had a great, great sense of family. They normally followed some kind of chief, but, but also leadership is a lot of times shared uh, in the community. They loved nature. Okay, they lived in some really beautiful places. They had a sense of connection with the land. They even kept a very specific Celtic calendar of festivals and celebrations, but it really followed the natural seasons of the year. Like most people then, Celts believed in lots of spirits and lots of gods. Okay? And they believed that the gods were everywhere. In fact, what they had was this belief that, um, that there was the natural world, which you and I can see, feel, smell, 
there's also a spiritual world that's kind of everywhere, okay? And especially all throughout nature, okay? And then they had this really interesting concept of thin spaces. In other words, there were these places where the line, the veil, the wall between the spiritual world and the natural world was thinner. Like you could get more in touch with the gods in certain special places or doing certain special activities. You had thin spaces where God, the gods were closer to you. The Celts were people of story. They loved to tell stories. In fact, part of why we don't know so much about the Celts is that they were very averse to writing anything down. They believed stuff should be passed along verbally in the form of story. So most of what we have about Celtic people is from legend. It's from song. Okay, so if you go to study a guy like St. Patrick, who we're going to talk about, okay, uh, there's all kinds of legends about Patrick. It's a little hard sometimes to define what's fact, what's fiction. It's because they told stories. The stories were even more important than the history, and they, they didn't want to write stuff down. They wanted to tell the stories. There are people of art and symbol. We know that uh, um, among the, they were known among the Romans for their colorful clothing when they would go to battle. By the way, if they were clothing at all, sometimes they actually battled without any clothing, which even though the Romans were not very prudish, thought was kind of gross. Buried Celts also found uh, by archaeologists have, uh, even although the, the clothing that they might have worn has decomposed, we have found very beautiful, like a brooch or a pin, that they would hold their clothes together. I mean, from very early on. And if you've seen anybody who wears, like, I thought about getting a kilt for this, and I didn't. But if I'd worn a kilt and then had, you know, my, my clan colors over my shoulder, a lot of times you wear some kind of brooch or pin. Very early on, they, were, they had very elaborate pins to hold their clothing together. It was, it was part of their art. It was part of their symbolism. Um, the Celts were also known as great warriors. The Romans talk about how the Gauls were tall and lean and muscular men, that they were very skilled for battle. In fact, in many ways, the Celts were better warriors than the Romans. The problem was they were just too tribal. George Hunter, in his book, The Celtic Way of Evangelism, describes it like this. If you ever saw a tiger fight a lion, a tiger wins every time. Okay? If you ever run lions, they're actually kind of lazy. Okay? Tigers are big, they are vicious, they are athletic. But if you ever see a group of tigers fight a group of lions, the lions will win absolutely every time. Because tigers, even though they're vicious, they are independent hunters. Lions hunt as a pack. Okay, so what a group of lions will do is they will kill the tigers one at a time, like five on one, then five on one, then five on one. And this is really exactly what happened to the Celts, is because they were so tribal, they were tougher warriors than people like the Romans. But the Romans were so disciplined at working together that they really would be, they would just beat one Celtic tribe at a time, and the Celts would never sort of come together. And so what happens over time is the, the Romans started pushing them, and then the Germanic people from Germany uh, today and from sort of the, the northeast of Europe would start pushing them in. And then eventually you got, um, uh, Spain became very Muslim, and so the so Celts get either absorbed, killed, or pushed out of there. And then eventually what sort of happens is the Celts get smaller, and they get smaller, and they get smaller until they're on these little islands, the British Isles. And even there, they get pushed around, pushed to the brink. And so they're on all these little Scottish and Irish and Wales, these, these little teeny islands. 
Why? Because they were good warriors. They never fought together. The only place where Celtic languages are still used today are, are in those little isles. That's the ancient British, Britonic languages of Breton, Cornish, and Welsh, and Gaelic. That's Irish, Manx, and Scottish variants. Okay, that's where we get Celts today. Now, the Christians, and, and especially Romans, the Celts were seen as barbarians. They worshipped nature. They sometimes fought naked. They, uh, you know, thought about all these different gods. They didn't want to write anything down. They didn't want to get intellectually. Actually, they, they wanted to learn a lot. They just were against writing. Uh, and so, so what they used to do is they used to try to civilize the people. This has been a problem for missionaries, and this is another sermon I'm going to do sometime, uh, all throughout missionary history. What a lot of times people would want to do is civilize the people that were local so that, that Americans, uh, uh, the, the British Empire, whatever, come in, and not only do they want to convert you to Christianity, but they want you to become more Roman or more English. They want you to dress like they do, not in your native dress, and speak their language and read their books. And so what happens in a lot of missionary movements is the Christians get pulled out of their culture and become like the, the, uh, the empire. But what happens is then they are not very good at speaking to the rest of their culture. So in a lot of these places where like the British would do uh, missionary work. They would get people to act British, but then the people wouldn't get to talk to their neighbors about Jesus because their neighbors rejected them because they looked so British. This is what the Romans would try to do. In fact, the Romans really had the sense that the Celts couldn't be reached. They were too barbaric. They were too out there. What happened actually in Celtic Christianity was very different. In Celtic Christianity, it didn't happen like that. When they found Christianity, they did not also convert to Romanism. Okay? They did not also convert to different missionaries from different places. They, what they formed was what was really an authentically Celtic Christianity. They, they formed an authentically Celtic Christianity. This began with the work of a guy named Patrick. St. Patrick, you all know him. Patron saint of green beer. Okay? There's lots of legends about St. Patrick. One is that he, he uh, banished snakes from Ireland. Uh, we don't think that's true. We think there's probably never been snakes in Ireland. Um, but, so there's lots of legends about Patrick. But, but there really was a person named Patrick, passed down an oral tradition, a real person who lived somewhere in about the 5th century. He was from Britain. And when he was about 16, he was captured by pirates who were Irish. And he was taken, he raised for a number of years, um, something like six years, he was a slave in Ireland. Um, so he was among Celtic people as somebody who was from Britain. And, and eventually he escaped and got back. But what he found was he actually fell sort of in love with the Celtic people. And as he got older, decided he wanted to be a missionary and go back to those people who had captured him as a slave. And so he did that. He pulled together a band of people with some of them who were clergy, some of them were not, some were men, some were women, but he, he brought this sort of team of missionaries together, and they came in to be missionaries to the Celts. But what's interesting is he didn't try to make them British. He didn't try to make them Roman. Okay, He really tried to authentically tell them about the gospel and let the gospel be a part of their faith and their people. 
So he would go into a tribe, he would meet with the chief, ask permission to be there, and then he would be there in the community and would sort of share the faith. And then as Christians sort of got a foothold, they would build churches and then they would move on. He was there for 28 years, St. Patrick. And in 28 years, we know of about 55 churches that he built. In other words, there's 55 tribes, okay, uh, 55 communities that he built churches in. There are about 150 tribes in Ireland, and uh, at least 30 to 40 of them became very substantially Christian. Like most of the people in the tribe were Christian. Now, other key missionaries would follow behind, but they would also be kind of similar in that. St. Columba worked in Scotland. St. Brigid, the patroness saint of Ireland, started several convents for nuns. St. Brendan, the, the navigator, sailed and did missionary work there as well. But what these people did was instead of making a faith that was kind of implanted and not natural to the land, we got Celtic Christianity. So let me, let me just talk through a couple of these things. We said that the Celts were tribal, that they were very into family. Well, now when the Celts became Christians, they thought, oh, well, actually, that's very Christian, isn't it? to be deep in thought, to be deep into community, to be deep into family. And so they kept for that. They had a word for that, Anam Kara. Anam Kara is based on the idea of a soul friend, that you needed to have somebody in your life that you shared your soul with, a soul partner, a soul friend. And so they took their their views that they already had about being in family and tribe, and they made it into a concept that agreed with Scripture. They loved nature. And they continued to love nature. But instead of seeing gods in all of nature, they started to put nature in its proper place. They started to love the Psalms because the Psalms talk about the heavens declaring the goodness of God. So the Celts started to learn Psalms because they loved it because they could see, oh, oh, like what we were talking about with nature sort of reflecting God's glory. We're not seeing spirits in everything. We're seeing God reflected. The Celtic calendar became more of a Christian calendar. They started to understand the idea of one true God. One thing that's interesting about the Celts, and so this is the 4th century, so this is only 100 to 200 years after the whole debate about the Trinity and the divinity of Jesus comes up. One of the things that they were very serious about doing, these missionaries, they were very serious about teaching people who the real true God was and helping them understand that God. Patrick's famous for this. What's the one thing you probably know about Patrick? Three-leaf clover, right? The shamrock. Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So there's even legend today of how he tried to help them understand uh, the Trinity. He helped them understand. So they replaced their view of all these gods and spirits with the one true God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Celts had this huge belief in Jesus, really strong Jesus at the center of everything they did. They kept, though, their idea of thin spaces. Thin spaces. That there were certain holy spaces, like coming to church certain places from your childhood that that bring you closer to God in some way, certain activities like friendship that could do that, pilgrimage. They continued to love friendship. They continued to love telling stories, but now they held all these new stories, Bible stories. And so the Celts became real people of the Bible, loving to share the Bible stories. They still loved symbols and they still loved art. In fact, they had several symbols that that they used. One was kind of a cross, 
that, um, that would mul be multiple directions. And then they had this sort of symbol of circle being like the sun as our guiding, uh, as our light and our source, or the circle being like the earth and the completion and how things fit together. Well, wh what did that become? Celtic cross. Yeah, a lot of you have seen a Celtic cross. Okay, cross with a circle in the middle. Okay, our one up here is similar to that. Okay, Presbyterian logo has some of this because uh, they, they also like putting knots. Okay, kind of connectedness. That's very Celtic sort of way of representing that. They also put a lot of Bible stories in there. So if you go to Scotland or Ireland, I don't know how many of you have been there, you will find uh, Celtic crosses marking key places, marking graves. Um, Celtic crosses became part of how they told the stories. One famous example of the art and symbol and story is the, called the Book of the Kells. You should look this up later. I put a little thing in it uh, in the handout, but um, it's, this, it's this copy of the um, Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but, but written with the most beautiful drawings and pictures and Celtic. Uh, it, it's, it's like an artistic Celtic representation of the Gospels. The Celts stayed tough. And so they, they, uh, they often fought. And if you've seen Braveheart or you've seen some of the history, you know some of the history, you know they, they continue to be very tough warriors. But for Celtic Christians, they became very brave about sharing their faith. Very brave about living their faith out in their communities, caring for their world. See, this was not a Romanized church. This was authentically Celtic Christianity. Right? And, and because of that, the Catholic Church did not know what to do with the Celts. The Catholic Church never knew what to do with the Celts. Okay? And if you know Scottish Irish history, uh, they, they never knew quite what to do with their Catholic heritage, and they sort of wrestled over that. And then eventually got the Church of England. That was a whole thing too, okay? Because they were they never quite fit in with the established church. But when the Reformation started, they actually did kind of fit in with these reformers because they hadn't fit in with the established church anyway. So when the Reformation got started, the Celts were like, "Oh, we've been saying that stuff for a long time." Okay, the, the Celts had a different kind of understanding of a lot of that. And so they got on board with, with the Reformation fairly quickly, um, but also put them at odds with the established church of the day. And so you had Scottish and Irish reformers that got kicked out of Scotland and Ireland. One very famous one was a guy named John Knox. Okay, John Knox went, they, they a lot of times would go to, to Switzerland, they would go to Germany, places where the Reformation was the dominant voice. Um, and John Knox actually went and studied at Geneva with John Calvin, came back, started a church in Scotland and Ireland based on elders that are leaders. They called them presbyters, Presbyterians, right? This is our history. And so we have two major influences. We have the Reformation, which is very logical. It's very enlightenment. It's very head-oriented. But we're also Celts. We also have hearts and experience, and, and, and wanting to find joy, and wanting to think deeply, and wanting to experience God in many ways. Of course, they both had heart and head, right? I'm oversimplifying, but, but I think over time, one started to take over the other, to the point where some of you are hearing about Celts for the very first time, right? And you probably have heard a little bit about the Reformation, but you've not heard about our Celtic heritage. Everybody, I hadn't. I've been having some fun doing this research and talking to my parents because they weren't as in touch with some of this. 
And my mom is very Scottish. Okay, we have the DNA test to prove it. She is over 50% Scottish. This is my heritage. Okay, and maybe this isn't your, your natural heritage, but if you're part of this church, this is part of our DNA. So I wonder if the Celts can teach us how to experience God, how to live bravely in challenging times, how, how to be ourselves and authentically follow Christ in who we are, how to have a very big view of the Spirit, of the Trinity, and of Jesus in our lives. So that's what I want to explore this summer. I want to wrestle through some of these topics. I want to sit under the Celts and let them be our teachers. So I'm planning sermons on thin spaces, on Anam Kara, on, uh, on the soul friendship, on how they did evangelism and how they did missionary work and how they reached their culture, what their relationship with nature was, Celtic worship. Our worship on Sunday mornings is going to come a little more out of uh, two groups, the Iona Abbey and um, the Northumbria community. In that handout, there's a little more info about them, but you're going to feel, the, the liturgy may feel a little different this summer. Um, and that's okay. This is part of our heritage, part of our spiritual DNA. And uh, I, as this has been feeding my soul for a little while as I've been doing this research. And I hope as we have this summer of Celts, we'll call it the Celtic summer, that it'll be good for you as well.